helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning and welcome to today's program. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. As we always say, it's a common concern and it's money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to Talk Money. We have a program today that I think you're going to find interesting and informative and entertaining. And of course, that's good radio. So we want you to be sure to stay with us through the whole program because we're going to talk about the stock market and what do we expect that stock market's going to do after the election. Well, that seems to be a lot of people's question. I mean, I tell you, it is uh, if you're if you're getting a Starbucks or you're getting you're going in to have a dinner or you're meeting somebody to play golf, the first nine holes that's all you're going to talk about is what's the market going to do after the election. Well. We've got some people in the in the studio with us today that have some tremendous amounts of education, number one, and they're pretty sharp people. So we're going to kind of go through and talk about the stock market, stocks. And let me give you something here. Let me give you a statistic, though, that I think it's kind of important. Simply, this is some research we put together. It says, based on the performance since 1936 through 2019, the S&P averaged about 6.7% per year, and that's in the first year of a four-year presidential term. Now, that's an average. 8.7% during the second year, 18.5% during the third year, and on the fourth year, 9.4%. Now, that's since 1936, an average. Next year, 2021, here's a thought. That will be the first year of a second-term Trump administration or year one of the first time of a Biden administration. So literally, look at it from that standpoint. Doesn't look like it's going to be too big of a deal. Well, my guest is Scott Jordan and Drew Johnson, and we're talking about stocks. We're talking about that reality of uh, buying a part of a company and uh, selling it to make money. Here's a thought for you. As of the close of the stock trading Wednesday, that's November the, excuse me, Wednesday the 30th of September, you're not going to want to hear this. 13 individual stocks on the S&P 500 were up at least 50% year to date. 13, 13 individual stocks. 34 individual stocks of the S&P 500 were down 50% year to date. Drew? Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Jim. Great to be here, Jim. Well, guys, I tell you, does that shock you, Drew, when I tell you that 13 are up 51% and down a 50% year-to-date and 34% are down 50%? Does that kind of tell you what's going on in the market? Yeah, it, it does. It doesn't really shock me that much. And uh, once once we get into that part of what we're going to be talking about, I think it'll be clear why it doesn't shock me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, here's the question that we've got. You know, should I buy into the market pre-election or post-election? That was the question. And I mean, it's like, do I wait? And literally because, and I can understand this, 51% of Americans, and this was done by Simple Wise. 
This is that investment group. SimpleWise Retirement Confidence. It's a group that surveyed a little over 1,000 Americans. And they said that 51% felt that in September, this was in September when they did it, that after the election that the market would decline at least 20%. Now, they said it would be over the next six months after the election. So you got 50% of this survey. I wonder if that's what, do we think that's nationwide? Do you think that was a picked thousand people or Drew, what do you think? Uh, it sounds like a lot of people are pessimistic out there that answered that poll. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's 51% of them, Scott. Right. What about you? I think that's correct. Yeah, it sounds like a little pessimism. Well, you know, pessimism, I think, <clears throat> is what we see in the market a lot of times. And when there's unknowns, pessimism kind of creeps in there. But here's what I want to do, Drew. When we talk about buying stock into the stock market, let's start with the definition. What is a stock? Absolutely. I mean, to think about it in the most simple terms, it just represents a participation in a a company's profits and losses. Uh, That's what it means, basically. But we can break that down a little further and put it in uh, more layman's terms. Uh, We would speak of a stock as holding an equity stake in a company. Now, even that sounds a little abstract. So think of it like uh, home ownership. We talk about uh, you you have an equity position in in the home that you own. That's how pe- most people are going to use the term equity in their everyday lives. Now, a difference between having an equity stake in your home and having an equity stake in your company is that when you own stock in a company, you don't actually own the physical building or the physical assets. If you own stock in a company, you can't just walk in the front door and start telling people <laughs> what to do. Um, that's not what that means, that you own it. It means that by owning it, you not that you are managing the company, but that you have a right to participate in that company's profits and losses. That's what it means. All right. So profits and losses, 51% of this you know, group said, hey, they thought the market was going to go down 20%. Will they still participate? That would be the losses. Am I correct? It's just the stock went down. Doesn't mean it really the company lost money, does it? No, not necessarily. It means that people expect it to lose money okay, if it so goes down. The expectation is what they're what's happening in the stock. So literally when somebody says, Well, the stock market's going down or my stock is going down, it doesn't necessarily mean that the company is doing poorly. Right. A company didn't suddenly go from making twenty million dollars to losing twenty million dollars overnight because the because the price dropped by so much. And I think people need to understand that. Uh, you know, I mean, Scott, when we talk about it with people, a lot of times we say, you know, watch the market. You're buying the company, and just because that stock is down, like you know, across the board, or, or that individual stock's down, doesn't mean the company's going out of business. That's absolutely right. And we were talking with somebody about that just yesterday. That. You know, uh, I think it's good that Drew's kind of breaking down what it means to own a stock because we were talking to this particular individual about when you buy a stock, you're buying into a company. So understand what that company does, understand how they make money, and believe in what that company is doing, and that'll help you ride out some of those emotional up and downs. Exactly, and and not get caught up in the news media. And I know Drew's going to talk about that feature. Profits and losses, Drew. Why was anybody wanting to buy profits and losses? Oh, I mean, yeah, that's exactly. That's a great question. I mean, you put it in those terms, you think, what, you know, why, gosh, why would anybody want to do that? Yeah. Why would I, why would I want to deliberately participate in the losses and the profits of a company? Uh, but to really understand why someone want to do that, you have to look at why a company would issue stock in the first place. Uh, companies have to raise money in order to fund whatever operations they have in order to bring products and services to their consumers. And in order to do that, they can raise money a few, one of two ways. They can either go into debt or they can raise stock and spread out the ownership of the company. Now, the issue was 
if you raise, well, let's imagine, let me back up. Imagine a scenario where a company can do all of one or all of the other. Now, a company that is only going to go into debt for its operations, well, it has to make a profit on its business. Well, part of that profit then, what's or part of their earnings that are left over, have to go into paying for the interest on that loan, however they raise that money. Now, if they raise stock, they don't have to do that, so that frees up more cash for them to then reinvest into the company or pay out in dividends to the shareholders. And so since interest rates on debt are determined by the expectation of economic growth, by inflation, and then by uh, uh, creditworthiness of the company, that means that if a company has stock where they're not having to make those interest payments, in theory, that has potential to grow faster than the economy because they don't have that drag on their interest rates. And so to put it simply, uh, a stock has a greater potential for return over time than, say, uh, the owner of a company's debt. Okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense. So when you're buying an individual stock, you kind of want to know how much the company has in debt. Exactly. Because managing their debt can be the problems that a lot of companies get into trouble not able to manage their debt. So you, know, you need to be looking at that. That's all part of buying a stock. Of course, individuals today buying stock, we, we kind of say that's great. We see the professional managers today, they're going into the deep dive and doing a tremendous amount of research. But what I'm trying, what I think you're saying to us, Scott, and both of you, Drew, is that basically know what you're buying, know the company is what Scott said, and then understand the debt and the structure of the company, Drew. That's fair first thing you said. Right, exactly. And when you're, when you're looking at, at stocks, what we've talked about thus far, uh, all we're talking about is how it's basically structured, but we're not really talking about the content. The, we're talking about the, the, uh, the, the skeleton here, but the real muscles and the skin and everything else, that goes into what a company's actually producing, what services or goods are they providing and selling to the public. Do customers want those things? Uh, that's what really goes into the cash flow of the company, whether it's profitable or not. Uh, and that's something that is very difficult to predict over time. So a stock price today is ultimately based on what you think a consumer is going to want tomorrow. That makes a lot of sense. I'm just to give you the best example that I was taught not 100 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. But, but the fact was buggy whips. All of a sudden, Buggy Whips, which was a big product at one time. Buggy Whips. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> buggy Whips. Okay. Okay, Buggy Whips, guys. Buggy Whips were real. They were, that was a product. But all of a sudden, with the invention of the car, bottom line, buggy whips, buggy whips went out of business. Now, why? Because the consumer, as you just said, and I think that's perfect, Drew, didn't want to buy. At least they were not buying as many Buggy Whips. After the car came around, is that right? Uh, you could hit that car all day long. It wouldn't, it wouldn't go it any wouldn't faster. Go any faster or too fast, whatever. So when you talk about the influence of a stock performance, you're talking about what the consumer is really saying. Exactly. All it's, right. it, it's what they're going to want. And what they're going to want. But now I know, Drew, that you talk about a lot of, literally a lot of times, that the consumer spending can be the ultimate driver of stock performance. Talk about that. What do you, the ultimate driver? Even though the stock market and the economy are not the same thing, they're often confused, but they're not the same thing at all. The fact is consumer spending is what drives both of those, both of those things, both of those areas of activity. Uh, but when we're talking about 
things like the news cycle, what we're really talking about are events. That's what we're talking about and how we think events today are going to affect consumer choices tomorrow. And it can work out in very unpredictable ways. One uh, way that, uh, that's of recent memory would be the use, uh, widespread use of teleconferencing for businesses where the employees have had to work remotely. Now, there was no reason why that should have suddenly become a thing. Uh, that technology has been around for a, quite a while, um, but it wasn't really in widespread use outside of personal use for most people. Businesses weren't really using it all that much, uh, but then it became the rage. Now, there was no reason why people couldn't have just continued doing ordinary phone conference calls for meetings. They're working remotely. Um, they could have. Uh, certainly, we don't have to see each other to communicate. We landed on the moon six times without having to see each other, uh, seeing the astronauts and such in real time. So you don't have to be able to do that, but people suddenly wanted to, and it became a thing, and the companies that pursued that technology and offered that technology profited from it, from it, and that was something that was unpredictable. And so even when you know, kind of, when you at least have an idea of what events might be coming around, uh, around the corner, even then you don't entirely know how consumers are going to react to that. So let me see if I can understand and clarify for our listeners and Scott you help me too because what I think Drew you're saying consumers really drive the market is that what you're saying is that can I can I quote that can I say that the consumers making the difference every business that's in a business today is making something for a consumer whether it's the grocery store the clothing store, the iPhone store, whatever, or it's the big equipment, a ditch witch, a, a caterpillar, whatever it is, that consumer, somebody stepping up and say, I want to buy that. Right. If the consumer doesn't want to buy it and no consumer wants to buy it, then that company goes under. All right, so that buggy whips. There you go. You didn't want to buy buggy, buggy whips, whips, it goes under. <clears throat> so Unless well, the makers know, of buggy whips decide they want to make something well, else. They had to make a, that's right. They, they had to they use had, the They had to machines. adapt and change. But, you know, consumer spending is two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So consumer spending drives a lot of that growth in those companies. Well, consumers are people. People are unpredictable, and that's what makes investing And so, so that's difficult. when he, Drew talks about events. Yeah. You can, and, and, by the way, it's noise. You can get caught up literally with the noise that's going on on any TV program today. 24-7 news media, and that can create enough noise for the consumer to stop spending. For the, the vast amount of it is noise, because if you're, if you're owning a stock in a company, uh, you should be thinking of it in terms of the next five years, the next 10 years, even the next 15 years, not the next few months or the next year. A stock is a long-term investment. And so the likelihood that, that a particular event today is going to radically change your plan for 10 years from now is very, very small. Sometimes that can indeed happen, but a lot of times it doesn't. So a lot of what you get with the news cycle is just noise and is better left ignored when it comes to how you're planning for your future. That's not easy to do, though. I mean, I think the very noise difficult. creates the emotions. We talk about emotions, kind of guarding your emotions and dealing with that. And then you get 51% in this survey by Simply Wise Retirement Confidence, that index, literally, you know, doing 1,154 people said 51% of Americans surveyed in early September of this 20 year, 2020 said they expect a, a downturn in the market over the next six months of a 20%. Now, 
Is that a disaster if we had a 20% downturn? That's a big correction. Is that a disaster, Scott? No, not at all. The 20% uh, pullback in the market or a correction is very normal part of investing. Now, it's not fun. You just said it's very hard to stay the course, and it's very hard not to let those emotions take over. But downturns in the market are very common, and it's a, it's a part of what, as a long-term investor, you have to expect that those are going to happen from time to time. Because, again, we're dealing with people, and people are unpredictable. Well, I think that's no question about people are unpredictable. Investment worries, investor worries. There's this whether regardless of who's elected president, that's what a lot of people are trying to deal. You've got people on both sides going, if this person's elected, it's a disaster. If that person's elected, it's a disaster. So help me understand there's some unknowns that I know you talk about, Drew. What do you say when you talk to people? There are a lot of unknowns, and I'm sure that that survey that you mentioned earlier, that was what, is, what was at the forefront of a lot of people's minds was the upcoming, the, the upcoming election and the uncertainty surrounding that. But when you got, we got to back up and think about, though, what all that means. Um, you can talk about a, a candidate or a party. They could be talking about a lot of different things that they maybe want to implement if they get in office, but getting from point A to point B to point Z is a very complicated process for doing that. They may be talking about airline safety or bailouts or what have you, but what shape that's going to look like, we're not really sure. We don't know what those policies are going to look like. If, they, if they're talking about any regulations, that's got to get filtered through an, a government agency and go through all the bureaucracy there before it can actually be implemented. Uh, and then if it's a new law, heaven only knows what can happen to it once it goes through both houses of Congress and what it's going to look like. And then we don't know how a given policy is going to impact consumer expectations once it becomes policy. People don't always know uh, how that's going to work out. They've been trying to disincentivize smoking for years through uh, taxes on cigarettes. Right there you, on the package. Yeah, right there on the package, right. But if, you, but if you look at the CDC's data on smoking in the U.S. and you look at how it's impacted demographics, if there was a straight cause-effect relationship between the disincentives in the behavior, you would expect these different groups to basically behave more or less the same way with regard to smoking stats, and that's just not the case. It's impacted different groups very differently. And so even when you have a clear, even when you know what the policy is going to be because it's already been implemented, you don't know what the effect of it is going to be uh, and how consumers are going to react to it. That is wise counsel. Wise counsel, even though you may say this is the outcome, you don't know how it's going to affect the consumer. You don't know. And again, I know there's the alarmist, okay? There's the pessimist. There's the optimist. And then there's the stay the course. And we talk about avoiding letting your emotions dictate what you do in the market. Drew, anything else that you want to share with us before we go? I would just say that you have to tune out the noise because even no matter, you, you, could, know, you could know literally everything there is to know about a company, about where its profits come from, and that still is not going to give you a way to tell what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes. That sounds great. Scott, what about you? I know I'm going to be talking about the coming up. We're going to do, here's a question that we've gotten because, you know, people are asking here, all this is going on. I, we had a question, though, from someone that said, look, I really, I'm okay with what's going on in the market. But I really want to talk about college education for my grandkids. And I like that yeah. comment yeah. because yeah. that person literally said, hey, I don't care. I know that we're going to survive. I, I feel yeah. that this country is a great country and we will survive. And I want to pay for my kids, my grandkids, college education. So I'm impressed. I was extremely impressed. And because of that, 
I think this grandparents got a whole idea, but here was this question, and I want to introduce Frank Lacarica to the program. Welcome, Frank. Hey, Jim. Happy to, happy to be here. Thanks well, for having I, me. Here's the question that's come in that I really want you to dive in. We've been talking about stocks. We've been talking about the election and, and the, the anxiety, the pessimism, the whatever. But it, this guy says, look, I understand all that. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get caught up in the present and caught up. In, I've got a future for grandkids, and I want to purchase. And he says, I want to purchase a 529 plan for my grandkids. He has two. So I like him already. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, he's thinking, I want to take care. And I'm not caught up in all the noise. Now, you know, he, he's, got a, he's got a mind, and he's thinking through it. But he says, I'm looking optimistically to the future of my grandkids. I want to make sure they can go to college. So talk to me. He's, you know, his first question was, how much does it cost to go to college today? And I told him I hadn't got a clue, but it's more expensive was this than when I went to college. Yeah, a little bit more than it was when he went through. Uh, it's 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 something that that a lot of a lot of grandparents, a lot of parents, you know, some even kids are struggling with right now. How do I pay for college? Last year, 2019, the average cost for an in-state tuition, in-state tuition okay, at a Okay, do I need a drum roll here for this? You know, I mean, <laughs> you may. Do I need to take <laughs> an aspirin <laughs> before you tell me? Have, have a seat. Defibrillator. <laughs> they want to sit down. <laughs> okay. $10,000 a year, and that's a public in-state. So public in-state? In-state. Okay. Um, and if you wanted to go out of state, um, you're looking at about $27,000 a year. So... He wants to go to Harvard. I guess it goes more than that. Yeah, probably three <laughs> times that. I, whatever. Whatever. So, He'll be able to pay it back. All right. Yeah. So now here's the – and literally, if that's growth, I mean, you think about how much it's – I understand. I think you told me that about two percent, a little over two percent a year. Beyond inflation. Beyond so, beyond, beyond inflation. inflation. Yeah. Take oh. ordinary inflation. Uh, go ahead and slap another two and a half on top of it, and that's that's what the cost of uh, college education is typically increasing at. Right. You no, know, that's amazing, and I, I I know COVID is really uh, wrecking havoc on the college campuses and Zoom meetings and all the things like that. Some of the professors, I read a statistic, and I don't remember the actual number, so I won't quote it, but it was a low number of professors prior to this September who had actually done uh, successfully good, solid Zoom class meetings. and So they're on a huge learning curve. There's a lot of adaptation that, that's going on across the, the, the higher education uh, kind of systems, but the one thing that is staying consistent is the universities need to make money. They are staying open. They are continuing to, to offer classes. They are expecting their students to be on campus, and these costs are not going down. Down. <laughs> All right. I got it. So for this granddad who says, I am optimistic, I want to take care of my kids, grandchildren, my grandkids, their college education, I want to know about a 529 plan. Let's talk about this, and first and foremost, before we take a break, I want you to give me three of the characteristics that he needs to understand before he moves into a 529 plan. Uh, control is probably the most important one. You want to know who controls the actual 529 plan. Um, you want to know about flexibility. You want to know who can contribute, how much. Uh, do you know about the future tax? And then taxation. Uh, are the contributions tax deductible? Are they tax deferred? And how are the distributions when we go to access those funds? How are those taxed? That's a big deal. I mean, that's that's just three. There's just three, three more to come. <laughs> All right. When we come back, we want you to kind of help us through the six characteristics, but there's two plans. 
college savings plan and again a paid tuition plan i want to know more about that if you just tuned in my guest today is frank lacarica we just got to talking with scott jordan and scott's going to stay with us during this program and drew johnson helped us through understanding stocks you might want to check it out on the podcast we'll be back in a minute i'm jim shoemaker this is talk money podcast of talk money are available in the itunes store just search shoemaker financial We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Frank Lickerica, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services and Securities Dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, if you just tuned in, we've been talking with Drew Johnson. We went through a whole series of questions and thoughts about buying stocks, regardless of who's in the White House. And uh, I think it was important. And if you'd like to review that program, listen to it again, go to the iTunes store and simply search for Shoemaker Financial. And you can listen to the podcast that way. And there's several in there that you might find interesting about that topic. And uh, Drew did a great job. My guest at this moment is... Frank Lacarica, and we're talking about a subject that I was so impressed when this grandfather asked. He said, tell me about a 529 plan. And I asked, and I said, okay, why are you thinking? He said, I got two grandkids. I want to make sure they go to college. And I said, well, aren't you, what about this? He said, I'm not concerned about all the noise. I'm, and he used the word optimistic. And uh, I think that's a great lesson for a lot of us. He said, I'm looking forward to seeing my grandkids graduate and uh, from college. Now, they're only three and six at this point, so I like his optimism all the way around. Frank, you were talking earlier about basic characteristics to consider in a, when a person is buying a 529. You talked mm-hmm. about control, flexibility, and obviously the taxation of the 529 plan. There's three more. There's three more. Uh, financial aid's a big piece of it, uh, assuming you qualify. Uh, how will uh, how will the amount of financial aid be impacted by a five two nine plan? The savings you already have in place. There's growth and accumulation. Uh, obviously, we want to invest in something that grows over time and allows us to make more money than utilize for those higher education expenses. And then for the grandparents, like you talked about, there are some estate planning strategies uh, that can reduce taxable uh, estates even if you've given given the money away. And then there's some other that do offer significant estate planning benefits. So estate planning can be a tremendous piece of a 529. All right. So that's all of those characteristics that you need to be sensitive. It's control, flexibility, taxation, financial aid. Does it harm your financial? If, re- if you're eligible, mm-hmm. be careful. Would it destroy your financial potential for financial aid? And then growth and accumulation and ultimately estate planning. Look at it from that perspective. All those characteristics play into making the decision. Absolutely. All right. Here's the question. College savings plan. There's two plans, college savings plan and prepaid tuition plans. Talk about that. Well, the most common uh, 529 plan that, that we as advisors get approached with, it's it's the college savings plan. It's the, it's the 529. It's the I put money in there. It grows tax deferred. We use that money to pay for college down the road. That's the college savings plan. Uh, also, the, the less known name, qualified tuition plan, but th- these are both 529s plans. So it's a college savings plan. Um, 
they these are the ones that, that they generally offer pretty significant uh, tax income benefits. They offer tax-free earnings uh, growth, tax-free withdrawals, so long as it's used for those qualified education expenses. Um, a lot of people, they're familiar with these because it's, it's, it's similar to their 401k. They put some money in, they invest in a fund, it grows over time, and then instead of using it for retirement, we use it to pay for college expenses. Okay, let's make sure everybody knows that if you're in a state and you're resident from one state to another, your state of residence may offer tax advantages to residents who participate in the in, in the in-state plan, but it's subject to meeting certain conditions and requirements. And you need to know those conditions and their requirements. And we need to make sure everybody understands if you happen to have a certain state, you know, get certain state tax advantages and all of a sudden you're moving out of state, you need to make sure that that movement is, you know, you check that out. Any state-based benefits should be one of, man, you know, many appro- appropriately, I think, weighted before you go out and make decisions to do this. So know the state, know yeah. what's going to happen there. You know, Scott, you talk to a lot of people. Now, when, when Frank talks about income tax benefits, tax-free earnings, growth and tax-free withdrawals, those are all part of it. You think from a mentality, a qualified plan, but... When you talk about 401, excuse me, I get it fixed one of these yep. days. 50501 C3. C56. <laughs> That's our problem. We got yeah. way too many numbers. Right. A 529 plan, what do you hear people asking when you hear them asking about a 529? Well, I think there's just this mysterious kind of what what is a 529 plan? What does that even mean? And I think the analogy of comparing it to a 401k is a perfect example. That each uh, Most states out there have a 529 plan, and for the college savings type, you don't have to participate in your own state's plan. Now, as you mentioned, there can be state tax benefits in particular states for participating in that plan, but like I can, I can live in Tennessee and participate in Virginia's 529 plan, and that money can be spent at any college. So there, you're not restricted to participating in your state's plan, but, you, but there may be tax benefits for doing that. But I think, I think the mystery is understanding what that is. And like Frank said, uh, inside of that plan, you can invest those assets in different choices, and different plans have different choices. So they're usually mutual fund type choices like you'll see inside of a 401k plan. And so you invest that money, that money grows, and as long as you use that for qualified higher education expenses, those can be pulled out tax-free. Okay. Now, Frank, I'm asking this question because I think so many people listening are going, all right, can I pay for tuition? Can I pay? What, what am I going to What gonna, is a qualified what, yeah. expense? Yeah. When you talk about a qualified yeah. expense. That's, well, when we talked about those numbers earlier, those, those 10 and the 27,000, those were just, that was just the cost of the, 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 uh, the education, the, the tuition, the that fees. That doesn't cover room that and board. Room and, and board, doesn't include books, uh, doesn't include supplies. I'm, I'm depressed include, already. <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, it's expensive. And so when we talk about those qualified education expenses, that is the tuition fees. Those are the books, there's supplies, room and board, the costs associated with attending a, a university or a higher educational institution. All right. This person, this guy that, that asked this question, great question again, two grandkids. One decides not to go to college. Now, now hear my question because, I mean, he kind of asked this, but he never even, he really didn't pursue it. Yes, it's a son and a daughter, and we'll just call it Sally and John, okay? 
So Sally decides she's going on to graduate school. Can she get use that for graduate school? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, it's, it's just education. It's education, as long right. as it's a qualified John decides that he's not going to go to college. He mm-hmm. just, just says, I'm going to go, and, he, and it's, he's very sharp, and does it, and he doesn't go. Can she use his money? Absolutely. It could be transferred uh, from one child to another. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be used specifically for the child you intend. It's, it's, a, it's a, kind of a custodial account in the sense that it can go from the oldest child to the youngest child. If the oldest child gets, an, gets a scholarship, decides they want to serve in the armed forces, is called to do something else, those funds can still be utilized for the purpose of higher education with the second child or the third child or the fourth child however many children. Just as long, what about a niece or a nephew? I mean, I'm just throwing it out here, guys. A niece or a nephew, can you do it with that? I, I, it has to stay within the, the family. The family? Yeah. Okay, so that's important for us to keep that in mind. All right, what about financial aid? You mentioned that earlier. How does it impact financial it, it aid? It does. Uh, it's counted as an asset of the parent when, um, or the or the, if the owner is the, the, um, the parent of the student, it's counted as as an asset when you apply for financial aid. They, they want to know, you know, how how much, how much do you have saved for college? Do you have a 529 plan? Yes. How much? All these are, are considered when, when they're deciding how much aid to grant uh, the student uh, for, for their tuition, to, towards their tuition. All so right. That makes a, a lot of sense. Now, we're talking about a college savings plan. That's the, There's two types. This is, sec- mm-hmm. this is the 529. It's Section 529 of the Return Revenue Code. A 529 plan. College savings plan. Now, I want people to understand that if you're invested in this, this is just an investment. You're putting money regularly, monthly, annually, but it's not guaranteed that your contributions and the investment returns will be adequate for to cover that education cost. It doesn't mean – and it's fluctuating. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's why it's really good to, to, to think of it like a 401k for college. It can go up. It can go down. It could be that you are – you are, your child's arriving at, at, at college right at the, the worst possible time that you could be pulled. It could be down. You could be. So your contributor to a 529 college savings plan is going to be taking all the risk that a normal investor would be taking in any type of investment, ups yeah. and downs. And then you got to look at the penalties of when you're withdrawing it, as you said, mm-hmm. and, you know, and not being able to use it for non-educational withdrawals. All that's important to take into consideration. Now, we're talking about a college savings plan. You said it, Scott, or somebody said it, that a lot of people think about that's the only plan they can do, but there is this prepaid tuition plan. Talk about that for me, Frank. Well, uh, prepaid tuition plans, what they they do is they let you lock in future tuition rates at in-state public colleges at the current current rates and are usually guaranteed by the state. So, for example, uh, a family purchases shares worth half a year's tuition at a state college. The shares that they purchase will always be worth half of a year's tuition, even if it's 10, 15, 20 years later. You purchase half today, it's worth half tomorrow or 10 years from now. And based on what you said earlier, a little over 2% of inflation rate, that's a lot of money. It's a significant discount over time. So now... All right, I won't ask that question yet. I, I started to ask the question that it just leads me to think, okay, I, I get this, So, but go ahead. What else do I need to know about a 
you know, this whole idea of a prepaid tuition plan. Well, there's, there's a, it offers people a sense of security. You know, I've got half of it paid for up front. There's, there's no risk of loss of principal. Like we talked about with the college savings plan, it goes up with the market, it goes down with the market. This doesn't move at all. It's just you're purchasing shares of tuition. Um, they're guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the state that you, uh, you purchase from. And so, they require they do require you to be um, a state resident when the accounts open. So for here in Tennessee, if you wanted to purchase shares for the University of Tennessee, you could. What you couldn't go do is purchase for the University of Alabama, because we're in you have to Tennessee. Move. You have to live okay, in the state. Okay, but now wait a minute. If I decide this, this you know, I think we said uh, Sally and John, I believe mm-hmm. it was. If John says I'm going to go to the University of Alabama, can he use that tuition plan to go to Alabama? Or is it? Does it? Does what it does? He has to make up the difference, I guess. You have to make up the difference. Yeah. If if they move out of state, or if the child attends a participating school, uh, the family can still use the plan, but would be held responsible for the differences between the out of state and in state tuition. So but there's, you still a, but you still could benefit. use it. You still get the benefit of it, um, and that that does depend on the plan too. Um, you know, some plans treat it um, that uh, if the student. Let's say that the students uh, attending the University of Tennessee, but the family moves out of Tennessee, they would still treat it as in-state. So it depends on it's very state specific is okay. essentially All right. what That's to what take away from it. I think people need to understand there's two types of 529 plans for this granddad. We just gave him the best answer I think we could. There's two types. You got college savings plan. There's the prepaid tuition plan. There's some characteristics that you must understand. Control, flexibility, taxation, financial aid, growth and accumulation, and estate planning. All that plays in to making a decision about a 529. And thank you, Frank. I mean, great, great job of helping us understand. I think the person that was asking the question has gotten a great answer, and I thank you for that. I appreciate you having me on, Jim. All right. I want to switch gears here because the pandemic, here's the question. The pandemic has destroyed, they use that word, destroyed my credit. It seems that uh, it's so great. It wasn't. No, that's not what it said. It said it wasn't that great before. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know maybe they were having problems already, Scott. Yeah. But they're saying it wasn't that great before. But now, and all they said was dot dot dot. So I got it. You know, yeah, they got some yeah. credit problems. I understand credit problems during this pandemic. I understand the issues around credit. So help us quickly in the remaining minutes that we've got. What does a person do? Well, this is a big deal. You know, you think about when you think about credit, that affects a lot of things in our life. You know, when we go to buy a house, uh, that's going to affect what we're going to pay for that mortgage and what our monthly payment's going to be. When we go to buy a car, that's going to affect, you know, it can affect how much you have to put in as a down payment. It's also going to affect how much your payment's going to be. So it is very important to monitor, stay on top of, understand what affects your credit, and manage that credit score because that's going to affect a lot of things that you do in life. All right, managing the credit score. I kind of thought you might mention that, but now how can I check my credit history, my credit scores you're talking about? I mean, some people do it all the time. Some people do not know what we're talking about. I think, you know, in in today's modern world, it's become a lot easier to do. Everybody's entitled to a free credit report every year. You can go to one of the websites like annualcreditreport.com is one that a lot of people use. Any of the the three major credit agencies, Experian, Trans, uh, Trans, 
You just Tra- went right Trans by Union. me. TransUnion. TransUnion. I, I drew a go. blank there for a minute. You know, any, any of those it's credit early, agencies. Man. It's early. <laughs> it is. It is. Any of those will allow you to get a free credit report each year, too. Also, if you're denied credit for some reason or you get a negative response, they're required to give you your credit report in that instance as well. Uh, many credit card companies now, if you if you use a credit card, will allow you to go on their website or mobile app and get a quick look at your credit, not only your score, but also, you know, recent history. So it's become a lot easier to monitor that. Uh, there are other modern apps. There are other apps and technology that you can use that you can really go online every day and look at that if you want to. It's become a lot easier. I know Section 4021 of the of the CARE Act. Whoa, I'm well, out. Hey, I'm I remember out. that. I just, you know, I don't know why I remember that. I'm out that. of that one, Jim. But here's the thought. I mean, I know that that talks about specifically deferment or forbearance. And I think it's important that people understand the difference between a late payment or deferment and forbearance. A late payment or a non-payment is terrible on your credit score. But with that and the pandemic, people need to say, you know, pick up the phone. I think people need to understand, pick up the phone, call your creditor and say, can I get a deferment? Put put me off for a couple of months. Let me get started. Or can I get a forbearance, which means, you know, maybe they'll say, you you know, you, you'll be okay. We'll forbear you. We'll give you such a – that's better than missing a payment. That's, that looks a lot better. Or delinquency. You know, and that's the natural reaction, and we all kind of tend to have this, is to put those bills in the drawer and just shut and it and hope forget they, they go even away. exist. But, you know, it's important to reach out to those creditors, especially during the pandemic, because like you mentioned, I don't remember the Section 4023 oh, yeah, or whatever. You know, but a, there, there's been a lot of I uh, relaxation. I could remember 529 <laughs> but I remember that. <laughs> There's been a lot of relaxation of the rules around credit, so it's important that you contact your creditor, see what programs are out there to either go into a forbearance or deferment situation, because again, that's going to look a lot better on your credit report. Uh, they're they're not, re, you know, they first of all, it has to go over 30 days normally before it's reported. I think that's been extended to 120. I so think it is 120. there's there's a lot of rules around that that have been a lot more flexible now. But reach out, see what programs are available, because again. Protecting that credit score is important, and there's a lot of programs out there that can help you kind of stay the course until you can get back on your feet. I want people to listen because we're talking about credit repair. The question was, the pandemic has destroyed my credit. It wasn't that good before, but what do I do now? We're trying to go through that. Scott Jordan is my guest. We've talked about literally paying for college education, a very uh, optimistic granddad wants to pay for his two grandchildren, and Frank Licarica's talked about that. And then earlier on in the program at the very beginning, Drew Johnson talked about the market and stocks and what to do regardless of who's in the White House. If you want to listen to this program again, you simply can go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial, and there's a podcast that'll be there. You can listen to the program. Scott, I got a question for you. Here's the question again. How long does, when I look at my credit repair, this pandemic, as she said, has wrecked havoc. My credit wasn't that good earlier. But how long does information stay on my credit report? Normal negative information, late payments, missed payments, that'll stay on your credit for up to seven years. And then you go to things like bankruptcies, those are on there for more like 10 years. So, again, that's why it's important to stay on top of this and try to avoid any negative 
negative events that can be on your credit report because they're going to stay on there a long time. So late payments, they, we just need to understand, avoid late, pick up the phone. Right. And you can look at your, if it's a credit card or if you've got a mortgage or whatever, bottom line is you want to be able to stay in your home, keep food on the table, right. pick up the phone, don't hesitate to call and, and just say, I, I need some help. I want to talk about it. They're on the other line or listening to you. I think a lot of people think that if I get behind, and I, and I know people have experienced this, uh, that terrible phone call that is kind of in-your-face mentality. But the pandemic has really allowed people to open the door and sure. be a lot more flexible and a lot more helpful with people from that standpoint. Let me ask you this. What's positive information? Uh, is, there, is there a thought about that on the credit report? Yeah, and that, and that stays on there. It can stay on there for a lot longer. So, you know, like if you open a, a credit account, say it's a credit card, as long as you keep that card open, that, that history is going to stay on there. Things like on-time payments, uh, amount of credit you're using. You know, it's better to, to have credit and not be using all of it. That looks better on your credit report. So the amount of the credit that's available to you compared to how much you're using is very important to monitor and stay on top of. These are things that can help. These are what I would call positive things that get on your credit report that can help improve and offset some of that negative information. Frank, in your practice, when you're working with people and then we talk about managing credit, what do you say to them? I mean, it's a, it is a serious part of anybody's financial plan, managing their credit. So what do you tell them? Uh, typically, uh, avoiding uh, avoiding high interest credit cards. You know, working towards creating an emergency fund, not utilizing that credit. As Scott said, it's it's important to have it. We don't want to use a lot of it though, because it, like he said, it does impact the ability to go out and get a great rate on a home, to go out and purchase a car, to to go out and to do these things, to enjoy life, to live life. Because that's, I mean, ultimately, that's what we do as advisors is we just help clients live a better life. And that makes a and, lot of it's your, your credit, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on if you have good credit, it's fortunately, but it's a huge part of that. Uh, it, it impacts virtually everything you do. I think it's important. Scott, we only have a few minutes left. How do you repair bad credit? Well, you know, I think, first of all, you can you can contact if let's let's talk about negative information and, and possibly misinformation. You can contact either the business that provided that information or one of the credit agencies and dispute anything that's on your credit report that either may be untrue or may not be completely factual. And that's why it's important to, to check that over time. But also just, you know, like I said, not using as much of the credit that is paying down credit helps improve your credit score. Make payments on time. That is critical. Uh, when somebody's looking to loan your money, they're looking at your history and how you do with other people who've loaned you money in the past. So making those payments on time, lowering that amount of credit uses, those are two big things that will that will uh, help the score. And time also, you know, the longer you've had credit open, the longer history you have, that looks good on your credit report. Now, that's something you just kind of have to wait for, but just time of on-time payments, keeping that credit usage down, that will improve the score over time. I think for this person that sent the question, and what I want to make sure that we say to everybody listening when it comes to credit, when you're struggling, sometimes carrying that burden by yourself can be very difficult. Seek wise counsel. Get a partner. If you're, you know, your spouse is not enjoying the fact that you're in debt, get somebody that will help you, that you can share the burden with. Guys, yeah. that's just critical for yes, anybody. Absolutely. That burden of debt can be so bad 
for some people that it's so difficult that it just hardly can get out of it. So I would want to encourage everybody, find some counsel, get some, get your church people to help you with yeah. this. This is what we're talking about, coming together during this time to repair that. Drew Johnson, I want to ask you quickly, summarize, why do you buy stock in this particular situation? Coming with an election, why do we buy stock? Uh, we buy stock because we think that no matter who wins the election and what policies come about, that there are going to be companies, plenty of companies out there that are going to offer what consumers are going to want and that you want to profit from that. I like it. There's going to be plenty of companies. That's good because reality is that's the fact. There's not going to, you know, there are going to be buggy whip companies. that We know that. I've mentioned that earlier. But reality, the great companies continue to be great companies. Consumer buy Buy, the consumer buys goods, and, uh, you know, that's a big part of what we talk about when we talk about stock purchases and stock price. Frank, when we talk about 529 plans, this optimistic granddaddy, he says, I want to send my kids to college. Tell me about it. Uh, five to nine, save, uh, you know, contribute to the, to, to the future of, of, of our, of our country. If, you know, I think a lot of people can say we're, we're in unique times right now, but you know, it's, it's, it gives me, you know, a, a degree of hope knowing that there are people out there that are interested in the future of this country and that they're willing to invest. In. Amen. I like <laughs> it. You've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990 FM 107.9 and AM 990. My guests, Drew Johnson, Scott Jordan, and Frank Lacarica are with Shoemaker Financial. And if you have questions for Drew, Scott, or Frank, you can just simply give them a call at 901-757-5757. All right, here's the next week's program. You don't want to miss it. Paul Malley, Aging with Dignity, Five Wishes. I tell you, it is a great program. Ted Miner is going to talk about the must-know facts of Social Security. And Rob Clement, Elder Financial Abuse. That's Saturday, where we are here every week at 10 o'clock, helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guesting content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Lauren Forsyth. Compliance Officer Tommy Armstrong, Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Investments in fixed income securities are subject to the creditworthiness of their issuers and interest rate risk. As such, the net asset value of bond and real estate funds will fall as interest rates rise. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Frank Lecarica, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securing and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.